This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. This morning we are finishing our series, our six-part series, At the Core. And I hope you've been encouraged by that series. We've talked about a number of um, issues. It's been a series aimed at promoting primarily the mission of Fellowship Bible Church. And we need to pause maybe here at the end of the series and say, and what is that mission? If you'll remember from all the way through, as we've talked about week after week, the mission of Fellowship is to equip you, you the people of Fellowship, to change the world around you through two things. And those two things are irresistible lifestyles, and they're also influential works of service, which are characterized by these attributes that are behind me. People who are passionately committed to Jesus Christ. And even when I say that word passionate, it just strikes a chord in my heart that that's what God intended. Not that we believe in Jesus Christ, but that we are passionately committed to Jesus Christ. That we measure our life by the Bible. We're biblically measured. That we're, we're a people who are morally pure. We're a people who are family-centered. We understand that family is bigger than just our own family, though it includes that. But it includes the body of Christ to which we are a member, a part. It's also a body committed to being evangelistically bold and what a great opportunity we have this week. And then finally, and probably the most difficult one to put your arms around and to grasp and to understand is the one that I get to conclude with this morning. And that is that the body of Christ, that the people of fellowship who seek to have these irresistible lifestyles, that embedded at the core in that is that we're also to be socially responsible. Now, those things that are behind me is a very bold and specific vision to be sure. But let let me remind you, whether you are an old-timer here, you've been around for a while, or maybe you're just a recent newcomer or even a visitor here today, this mission statement is is not, please hear this, is not some lofty theological construct that's been conjured up by the leadership of the church to look good in a church manual. And oftentimes that's how they can play out. But that's not what this is about. No, we believe. The church believes, the leadership, the people of fellowship believe that what is behind me accurately reflects the way in which we should practically follow Jesus Christ. We believe that what is behind me is the best way to live. We believe that this lifestyle is within the reach of every person. It's not something just for some saints, some monks. It's for the guy who walks in who's struggling with an addiction, with a broken marriage. It's for anyone who comes wounded and hurting. It's within the reach of every person here. And we believe finally that those who pursue this mission, those who incorporate these attributes into their lifestyle, into their works of service, that those people will experience the best that life has to offer. We believe that. That's why we're pursuing it here. Now, with that said, let me introduce you to the last of these attributes, this last descriptive phrase of both our lifestyles and our works of service, and that is becoming someone who is socially responsible. Now, what does that mean? I want you to listen to the eminent historian from Britain, John Stott. He says, 
It is exceedingly strange that any follower of Jesus Christ should ever have needed to ask whether social involvement was their concern. For it is evident that Jesus went about teaching and preaching, and he went about doing good and healing. You know, it does seem strange that a Christian would question the legitimacy, the biblical legitimacy of social involvement. But that is exactly what has happened for much of this century, especially among those of us who call ourselves evangelicals. Social involvement among conservative Christians for most of this century was considered taboo, was considered a waste of time, was considered a useless substitute for the real work, the real work, the authentic work of proclaiming the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have carried that extreme understanding to a place where it is now a detriment to our world. In fact, our low point as evangelicals came in the 50s and 60s. Rather than lead the charge to end racial discrimination, racial bigotry, racial hatred, racial inequality, like the evangelicals led out in the 17th and 18th century, because they were the leaders then. Instead, 20th century evangelicals washed their hands of this kind of social injustice, especially among African Americans, and vigorously proclaimed behind pulpit after pulpit that our role, that our role was just to preach the word, period. I want you to know, we did our world a great disservice. And we should feel a certain measure of shame. Didn't the scriptures teach, our scriptures as we preach the word, that all men are created in the image of God? Did not we preach from those very same pulpits that from one couple all races flow so we find a kindredness and a cousinship in every person of every color on the face of the earth? Didn't even our Constitution declare that all men are created equal? Those facts are undeniable. But social denial, social denial is what most evangelicals lived in in the 50s and 60s. And to our shame, we denied the very gospel that we so piously proclaimed. Faith without works is dead, James said. But evangelicalism was not always this way. And thankfully, evangelicalism is changing even in our day right now. But I want you to know, we need to turn back the clock a bit and see the real bright spots of our heritage, our roots, our people in the past. Because in the centuries of the 17th and 18th, most of Protestantism would proudly proclaim that they were evangelicals that they were conservatives, that they were Bible-believing people. And men like John Wesley and George Whitfield and William Law and William Wilberforce and Charles Spurgeon and Charles Finney, these giants dotted the landscape of the world in that time, preaching the gospel to be sure. They preached the gospel, but listen, as they preached the gospel, they also served to be prophets of social righteousness to the world. I want you to listen to historian J. Wesley Brady's 
description of England in the early, uh, early 1700s before John Wesley arrived. He said this, England was characterized by the uncontrolled drunkenness of the populace, the inhuman traffic of African Negroes, universal gambling obsessions, the savagery of the prison system, the welter of immorality, the prostitution of the theater, the growing prevalence of lawlessness and lewdness and shallow pretensions of religion. Sounds like a country I know. That was England before John Wesley. But then John Wesley arrived. And then suddenly a revival broke out in the country that we know as, listen, this is the term even historians give to it, the evangelical revival. Because that's who led forth. And then England, after John Wesley, saw a profound change in the social landscape of the land. Listen, slave trade was abolished through William Wilberforce. Gave his whole life to it as an evangelical. The prison system was humanized. Education became available to all, especially to the poor. Conditions in factories and mines improved. And corruption gave way to an entirely new moral ethic in Britain. And the point to be made here is just simply this. True revival, true revival, transforms not only the soul. True revival transforms society. And anything less than that is not true revival, no matter how piously we might proclaim our born-againness. If we are born again but aren't agents of social change, something is wrong with the faith. Please hear that. And the church of Jesus Christ should always measure its effectiveness by those two concepts. Not just saving souls, but also saving society. So how did evangelicalism, with its rich history, how did we enter the 20th century and suddenly amputate one leg of our theology and be a one-legged religion? Well, it happened at the turn of the 20th century when a fairly unified Protestantism suddenly went left and right. It suddenly went liberal and conservative. Those terms unheard of before then, but suddenly liberal and conservative. In the early 1900s, liberal Protestants got caught up in the new thoughts of the day. And those new thoughts were Darwinian evolution, Marx, Marxist communism, and other new ideas. And, and suddenly a whole wing of the church, indeed the majority of the church, came to believe that man was now capable of ushering in God's kingdom and a new world order, not on faith, not on regeneration, not on biblical truth, but on what came to be known as a kind of Christian socialism. The message became known as, and it still is historically, the social gospel. And it dominates even now a many of our mainline churches who find their roots right there at the turn of the century. And so what they preach is a social gospel. And the idea of talking to some mainline people about becoming a Christian is even offensive to them. They, they are embarrassed that you would even mention that in some way. Because what they hear week to week is go out and do good. Just do good. But the power behind that goodness disappeared at the turn of the century. Listen to one of its most popular spokesmen, Walter Reichenbusch, in the early 1900s. In fact, in 1901, he said this, which really characterized the age. He said, it is not now a matter of getting individuals to heaven. That's not the goal anymore. 
but of transforming this life on earth into the harmony of heaven. And liberals believed at the turn of the 20th century, at the turn of the industrial age, that man was about to evolve into a new state of being and that what the 20th century would be characterized in their dreams and visions would be a heaven on earth in which man solved all his problems and there was a social communism, if you will, that would be over the land and everyone and every person in every place would be good and would do good. And yet what the 20th century did is vomit all that stuff right back in the face of those very same people. Now how about evangelicals? Well, you know what evangelicals did as they saw that extreme? Evangelicals swung. Now listen, listen real carefully. We swung in that early part of the 20th century to the opposite extreme. And I do mean extreme. We removed ourselves from much of society much of social injustice, much of the community and being a part of the community. That's why liberals get involved so much in social causes. That's why they got involved in the civil rights movement while conservatives did nothing. Instead, what we did is we gave all our time to the other side of the spectrum, that of defending and proclaiming not the social gospel, but the spiritual gospel. That's why even today we have all kinds of conservative churches and Bible churches that appear to people in the community as fortresses. People walled off from the community, isolated from the community, intent on doing one thing and one thing only, and that's just indoctrinating people with the truth that they believe they possess. Just getting them into heaven. Getting their souls saved getting their lives transformed, at least in a spiritual sense. I want you to know, now listen to me, I want you to know that the real truth is never at either extreme. The real truth of the gospel is that tense middle ground that we have to stand in. Saving faith, yes, but serving love, yes. Neither exists well. Neither does a good job. Neither proclaims a real gospel without the other. And that's why social responsibility needs to be at the forefront of the things we teach at the core. That's why this morning, really by divine coincidence, I think we're preparing to faithfully deliver the spiritual gospel this week, and I'm so excited about that, I can already stand it. But at the same time, I'm standing in the pulpit delivering a social message and you know what? That's good. That's a balance because both of the gospel. You know, when evangelicals met around the world in the Lausanne conference of evangelicals, all the evangelicals of the world got together, they realized they had missed it. And so they issued a statement after that Congress, and here's what it says, and I'm quoting. They say this, for the gospel is the root of which both evangelism and social responsibility are the fruits. Isn't that a great way of seeing it? The gospel is the root, but evangelism, the spiritual proclamation of the word to bring people to Christ, and social responsibility, those are the fruits, the twin fruits of the gospel. And our mission as a church demands that we have a twin identity. And here's what it is. First of all, we are to understand that we are to be a holy people. 
Yes, justified by faith alone. Yes, birthed into a new life by the Holy Spirit. Yes, nurtured in that new life by the Scripture, because you can't grow without the Scripture. But while that is absolutely true, it's equally true that our identity is that of being a worldly people. We're to be a worldly people. Jesus said it, not of the world, but in the world. A people of involvement who are what Jesus said we were saved for. And what were we saved for? Do you ever ask yourself that question? See, most Christians, evangelicals, think they were saved so that they could just experience abundant life. That's true. But if you put a period by that, you, become, you begin to look ugly to your world. You were saved for that, but you were also saved in order that you would become, as Jesus said, salt and light to the world. Rich in good works. Now if you would, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Would you turn there? Because Paul is trying to help this young pastor, Timothy, to learn how to lead his flock. And he spends a whole almost a whole chapter as he concludes this little letter to this young pastor, calling Timothy to shepherd the flock by calling his people to personal, listen, to personal social responsibility. I want you to look, we're only going to look at a few of the verses, but look at chapter 6, verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present age, or this present world, not to be conceited, are to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them, listen, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Boy, I'd love to just plant the flag and live here for a couple of hours or all afternoon and just let us, like standing in this wonderful field of flowers, we're standing in one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture when it talks about Christian lifestyle. We're in a field of beauty here. Now I want you to look back up at verse 17. Let's ask the obvious question, who are the rich? Isn't that a good question? You probably had that because you've already dismissed yourself from the passage, right? Who are the rich? Well, listen, 1 Timothy was written to the church in Ephesus. And the church in Ephesus is what historians describe as an opulent city. It was the capital of Western Asia. Kind of like Little Rock's the capital of Arkansas. It's where the Temple of Diana stood, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And people in Ephesus lived comfortably, if not in some cases extravagantly. They were proud. They were proud about their possessions. And even the lower income Ephesians in this great city were in many ways rich compared to the rest of the ancient world. Even the lower classes were wealthy by comparison because this is where all the income flowed of this whole region. The people traveled extensively. They drove, well, they drove late model chariots. They had designer togas. And you know what else they were? They were continually obsessing about having more. They were people where more was never enough. In other words, they were a lot like us, weren't they? And what Paul does is devote 
part of this chapter to the issue of social responsibility in regards to these people. And the point is, whether you this morning, and I know a lot of us don't like to consider ourselves rich. Most of us wouldn't, but we really are. Compared to the rest of the world and what we have and what we have access to, we are just like these Ephesians. In fact, we have more and have access to more than 95% of the world's population in this area. So you know what Ephesus was? Ephesus was West Little Rock. And this scripture is for everyone in this room. And so Paul, writing to this young pastor to help these people understand what to do with all this accumulation, to do with all this advantage that they didn't necessarily ask for, that they were born into by being born into the city of Ephesus. Paul starts out by just offering a warning. A warning about this wealth. And, and we need to hear that because the paradox of our age, just like the paradox of their age, is that when you have so much, you can be so poor. I got an email a couple of weeks ago that really expressed that. Here's what the email said. We have taller buildings but shorter tempers. We have wider freeways but narrower viewpoints. We spend more but we have less. We buy more but we enjoy it less. We have bigger homes and smaller families. More conveniences, but less time. We have more degrees, but less common sense. More knowledge, but less judgment. We spend too recklessly, laugh too little, drive too fast, and get too angry. We stay up too late, we get too tired, we read too seldom, we watch TV too much, and we pray too little. We have multiplied our possessions, but reduced our values. We talk too much and lie too often. We've learned how to make a living, but not a life. We've added years to life, but not life to years. We've been all the way to the moon and back, but we have trouble crossing the street to meet our neighbor. We've conquered outer space, but not inner space. We've done larger things, but not better things. We've cleaned up the air, but polluted the soul. We've split the atom, but not our prejudices. We write more, but we learn less. We have higher incomes, but lower morals. We plan more, but get less done. These are the days where we have steep profits and shallow relationships. Two incomes, but more divorces. Fancier houses, but broken homes. Yes, these are the days where we have more, but we have less. That's verse 17. And that speaks to everybody in this room, doesn't it? We know that to be true. Something is wrong with the age. It's an evil world, Jesus said, you live in. And you either redeem it or it takes you prisoner, one or the other. I want to be faithful to the text here and just instruct all of you with this. If you're, you're rich and all of you are, please don't make the mistake of generations of people and think life is in wealth. There's nothing wrong with wealth. It just never adds up to real life. When I talk to consultants, they tell me the most miserable people they meet are wealthy people trying to buy life with money. And that's so misguided. History tells us over and over again it can't be done, and yet every generation thinks they can do it. If you want life with wealth, then you must move into verse 18. I call verse 18 the promised land of the wealthy. That's really what verse 18 is. Look at what it says. It says, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. In other words, he's buttressing that right up against verse 17. 
this is not life. Don't fix your hope on it. Don't get proud with it. Be really careful. But here's what you should do. And what he does is give us a fourfold challenge. Listen, not to just cleaning up ourselves, but what this verse is speaking of is social responsibility. You see the four challenges there? To do good. That's number one, right? To be rich in good works. To be generous. And to be ready to share. Notice the first two deal with your personal involvement, you getting involved. The next two deals with your money getting involved. But this is a huge faith step. I mean, here we are, standing at the great divide. We can go with money for life or we can go with this for life. And see, social responsibility always starts with the individual. That's why I'm going back to the individual, not just the church here. Speaking to you and to me here this morning. So here's the million dollar question. How does a Christian of means become a Christian of social responsibility? How do you get this description over your life? I think there's three steps. Here's the first step. By believing, or by hearing, excuse me. First step is by hearing. In the same way you heard the gospel, today's Christians need to hear with absolute clarity that he or she, now listen, was not saved by Jesus Christ to stand there and wait for heaven. And yet, so often that's what we're doing. As people pass through the church, sometimes you start talking about finding a place for your gift to be used and all that, and it scares everybody to death as, as if it's a new concept. It's not a new concept. You were not saved to stand there. You were saved to do something. And you need to hear that. You need to understand that that is part and parcel with the Gospel. We are Christ's body. We're the, we're the living, visible expression of Christ's body. And we're doing just what Jesus Christ did when He was here. And He's our head. And what was He doing when He was here? He was moving about the people and the community. Preaching, yes, but also doing good and healing. And that's what we should be doing. Healing and helping and encouraging and giving and supporting and doing good as well as preaching and proclaiming the Gospel. And what I want to call you here today is to open your minds and heart to a broader Gospel understanding. Broaden your concept of salvation and, er and understand that becoming socially responsible is a major part of what you were saved for. Not just to go to heaven. Not just to fire escape for your sins. Listen to James, he says, and he asked this question, what use is it if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? What use is it? Faith is dead if it's by itself. So step number one, just like you heard the Gospel, is just hear this. Think about it. Step two is believing it. Believing that life is not found in what I can indulge myself in with all my resources. That's the more that becomes less. But life is found by believing that life is found in, in, in doing more. And that's, that's the more that really becomes more. And those of you who have done that and experienced that know exactly what I mean. It's not those empty calories. It's, it's the wonder of spiritual life in the kingdom. So you have to believe that. And that's a big step for a lot of us. And then lastly, by just risking. That's step three. Risking my time, my effort, my money, my expertise, 
by giving them away to others with no guarantee. Listen, no guarantee you'll get anything back. There's no guarantee other than what you read in this text. You know, a good place to start for some of you is by tithing a portion of your money. You know that social responsibility? You know that? There, there are many Christians who their hope is still in their wallet. It's a very basic understanding. I'm so glad somebody was courageous enough to speak to me as a young man about the importance of giving as my social duty. And do I look upon that as onerous? Let me tell you, I did when you told me that. I did. I thought, oh my gosh, he's just out to get my money. But here I am, some 25 years later, and giving has a whole different understanding to me because it's taught in the Scripture. And what giving has done is open the door to some of the wonders of the kingdom and how God deals with me in a special way. Some of you need to consider that for your life and risk in that most basic area. For some of you, you need to tithe not just your money, but your time and give yourself in some way. Find some just risk steps where you, you're aware of some need and instead of watching the TV, instead of just going on another hunting trip or fishing trip or golfing expedition, you take that same time and you tithe it to step into someone's world and just simply do good. And see which gives you more life. See risk, which gives you more life? Doing that or playing another 18 holes? Just see. I will never forget after we had the birth of our fourth child, Mason, my wife became desperately sick. We had to hospitalize her. And here I was trying to handle three kids and a newborn and a wife in a hospital all at the same time. And for a man, that is descent into darkness. <laughs> okay? And I want you to know I was desperate. And then suddenly this smiling face shows up at my door. Some, some person who had kind of gotten the word of my desperateness and decided to tie the portion of her time. It was Pat Sines. And I remember her saying to me, hey, whatever you need to do, I'll do. Let me just help you. In other words, in other, and then finally she said, just step out of the way and I'll handle it. <laughs> and there she was. She stepped into my world, my needy, desperate world, and she was rich in good works. She cleaned our house. She washed our clothes. She ironed everything. Even the dog was starched and ironed. <laughs> you know, and he looked great. But she supported and encouraged us through. For days she did that. And let me tell you, at that moment, what did she get out of all that? Here's the answer. Nothing. Nothing if the Scriptures are lying. She just wasted her time. Nothing if the Scriptures are lying. But a lot if the Scriptures are true. And that leads us to verse 19 about reward. <clears throat> when you live this way, as verse 18 proclaims, notice what it says. It says there's a twofold reward here. It says, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Now there are two rewards in that little statement as individuals. The first is that we store up for ourselves the treasure, a treasure in the future. And all the Bible teaches that. You might write down Matthew 25 and just read it tonight. Where Jesus talks about the great judgment with the sheep and the goats. And he's sitting on his glorious throne. And here come all these people and divides them right and left. And what does he say to the ones on his right? He says, blessed are you. Enter into the inheritance prepared for you. Because when I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. When I was hungry, 
you fed me. When I needed clothes and I was naked, you clothed me. And they say, well, when did we do that? And then Jesus says this, when you did it to others, you did it to me. And I'm not going to ever forget that. So I'm not worried about the reward Pat will get. That's already been recorded in the future. But you know, it's not just future. Notice the next line of the verse. It says that we may take hold of that which is life indeed. That last phrase literally means this, that you may take hold of the life that is really life. The life where more is more, not less. You might take hold of that kind of lifestyle. The question is, are you willing to believe that? You know, what verse 19 is also saying is that over time, as we personally learn to share our wealth and share our time, a deep transformation occurs in us. We find that our investments in others, in good works and generosity, no longer feels like a risk anymore. And you know why? Because we have this long line of personal experiences with the living God who has proved Himself by as we've done those things and given those things, He's proved Himself by giving life back to us. He's breathed it back to us. And not only has done that, but He's breathed in life into our good works. We've seen the incredible, the incredible effects that those things have done not only with people in the body, but in transforming our community. And so now we no longer have to give. And I was so glad at Scott's prayer. No one ever has to give. Don't give if you feel that. But suddenly in the wonder of giving and what you've experienced with God, you have the personal discovery of being excited about giving, of thinking about thinking of creative ways to do it. I've had people come up right before certain things in my life and just give. Just give out of because they were creative. They thought about ways to bless my life, and I've been encouraged by that to think about ways to bless other people's lives. You no longer have to get involved. It's not like common causes coming and oh my lord, what am I going to do? No, it's because I understand I, I've got a place, a church helping me use my gifts. I'm looking forward to the day that I can find areas of service that will energize my life and I can give life away because God has promised He'll be with me and He'll do that in me and do that in the efforts that I give. We get the personal discovery that less for us is really more. It's more life for everyone. Let me read to you a letter that I got a number of months back that probably illustrate that as well as anything. It's from a person not in our church, Carolyn Rucker. And she wrote, wrote me this letter. I don't know the lady. It just came out of the blue, but it said this. Dear Pastor Lewis, I would like to thank, take this opportunity to express to you and to the congregation of Fellowship Bible Church something about Lawrence and Cheryl Gunnels. I'm a single mother of six children, of which five are school-aged. I had just started a new job and had gone through a very trying experience when the Gunnels came into our lives. I had been injured on the job and off work with no pay. I was in bodily pain. I didn't get any aid from the children's father with child support, and I was desperately trying to keep the children in Christian schools. But then we met them in 1977 after my oldest son participated in the racial reconciliation rally. I don't have words to express what they mean to our family. I can only tell you what they've done. First of all, because there's no father or husband in the home, my oldest son was resentful and distrusting of any man. 
He was bitter and angry at his dad for being irresponsible. Mr. Gunnels has no idea what his presence in my son's life has done. He is no longer this angry, temperamental child. He is someone that he looks up to and who is there to encourage him and thank God. Second, my son wrecked our car and, well, to say the least, it was a mess. We were without transportation for a while. We were bumming rides and cabbing it daily. It was costly and a burden. Everywhere we went, it cost money. Then a massive search for a vehicle began. I was turned down at the bank. I was turned down at car dealerships. I was turned down by friends, and I cried my heart out. So I decided to call friends in order to rent a car again. I went down the list, and not one person could help me. The last name on the list was Lawrence Gunnels. I was so desperate that I didn't hesitate to call. I just made it. To my surprise, he an she an to my surprise, his wife answered the phone and without hesitation proceeded to help me in distress. It was quite unusual because they really didn't know me. They didn't know if I was irresponsible or negligent in caring for property. They offered me their car and my to me and my family. I was so overjoyed, I danced around the house all day. I was not at home when the car arrived, but I was beside myself when I saw it. They said we could use it for one week. We've had it now for almost four weeks. They have showed my children that love is action. Love has no color preference. It is not puffed up. It doesn't make a person feel inferior. I know that when I come out of this dry, cold period in my life, I will never fail to show love to the same degree that they have. I wanted everyone at your church to know how much we appreciate the love and support of this family. Yes, we do live in the hood, but that has never stopped them from giving one of my children a ride home or coming to pick up my son for sporting events. Mr. Gunnell is responsible for several of the children from Faith Christian High School having after school and summer jobs. I don't have any money to give them, nor do I have anything worth bartering with them. All I have is a deep appreciation and love for them. And I thank our Father God for them every day. And even though we still don't have a vehicle, it's not nearly as heart-shattering or burdensome as it once was before this family opened their heart to us. Now let me tell you, that's life. That's life. And if a church is filled with that kind of life, it has an incredible saving impact on the society, not just in bringing people to Christ, and yet we're so thankful for that, but also redeeming the entire community. And I want to ask you the question as I close, what if our church was filled to the brim with that kind of social responsibility? What if our church was filled with people who were without coercion, actively seeking to find ways that they could give more of themselves away to others so that they too could find life indeed. And I want you everyone to look at me here at this point. That is what our church is about at the core. That's what we're about. That's where we're leading everyone. We want you to know that's where we're taking you. So that at the core of your life, one of the manifestations of you and your family and of your lifestyle is that you're not passive. You're not standing around. You're not just enjoying the fruit of a good body, but you're a difference maker because at the core, you're socially responsible. And you know, if we have a church of individuals who embrace that in faith, then we will become a socially responsible church 
We have a corporate church strategy. I want to just give it to you briefly here at the end. But there's two phrases that sum up our strategy, and you already know it. One is missions and common cause. That's one. And the reason is because those are vehicles for you to express your social involvement, to go out around the world and make a difference, but also to give you the freedom to come up with all kinds of enterprises, to step into our society and meet these small niches of need in our community that then breathe life and uplift the whole community because by the deeds of the righteous, the Proverbs say, a city is exalted. And then I square our opportunity to give money away to bless others, not to just keep spending it on ourselves. But this will never be what it could be unless individuals choose the path, like you, of social responsibility, the path that Paul calls life indeed. Life indeed. You know, if more and more of us take seriously our social responsibility, if we look forward to seeking to find ways to give ourselves away according to the gifts God has given us, if we keep spawning, and I hope we do, listen, I hope you pray for this if we keep spawning more and more common cause groups that meet real needs in our community, if we keep reaching out across our world doing good, if, if we pay off this debt like we said we're going to do, but then do the real work and that is go on and keep on giving so that we can bless people to be generous, to be ready to share, to be rich in good works. If we do those things, I can promise this body, this church body, when you walk in on Sunday morning, Two things that you'll be excited about. Two things that will be almost like electricity drawing you here, and they'll be this. And that is, you, this body, will change this community. That's what will happen. And at the same time, God will change us. Those two, are, those two go hand in hand together. We will change our world, and even better, God will change us. And of course, where there was once more for me, more for me, more for me, there will certainly be less if you do what I'm telling you today for you. There'll be, there won't be more for you. There'll be less for you. But I will promise you, where there was once less of real life for all of us, there'll be more. Much more. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning just for a reminder over these last six weeks of what this church stands for. And oh God, I pray that You would put Your Spirit in us, a Spirit that would allow us to believe You for the things that we have talked about over these last six weeks that You would cause us to want, to hunger after, to desire to be a people who are passionately committed to You, who are biblically measured, who are morally pure, who are family-centered, evangelistically bold, and yes, Lord, a people who is socially responsible, difference-makers, because that's what we're called to be. I pray that You would do that. I pray that You would put hope within every heart. There are people here who desperately need help, but I pray even as they feel the wounds that they have within them, and the needs that they have within them for help, I pray that You would give them this vision that when they're healed up, when their wounds are bound, when their marriage is reconstructed, when their addiction is solved, where their problems are gone, Lord, help them not to stand there. Help them to do something. 
Father, we thank You that as a church You have given us the unique privilege among so many to be able to pursue You in such a generous way. May You help us arrive. May You help us get there. May You help us finish. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.